We will be reading from Genesis 32 and starting at verse 22. Ah, there it is on screen. Right. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overcome him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with human beings and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Let's pray. Lord, as we engage with your word, as we reflect on this incident in the life of one of your servants, as we reflect on your presence in this narrative, in this incident, we ask that we would see and hear how the same thing is perhaps happening in our life today. To your glory. Amen. This story really can be divided into three rhythms, if you mean three movements. It begins at night, it goes toward daybreak, and it finishes in the full force of day. And the first movement, if we're looking for a way of just capturing what's happening there, the counsel to us would be lean into the night. For this story begins with just a few words which I think can grip our soul if we begin to imagine ourselves in that situation. And it is in verse 24 with the three or four words, so Jacob was left alone. So Jacob was left alone. That's not a picture of someone enjoying some solitude, just some me time, just getting away from it all. This is a picture of someone who was bereft. This is a picture of someone who actually is under threat. Because at this point in the biblical story, Jacob is someone who was known for causing trouble and then running away from it. In Genesis 32, where we've just read, is literally sandwiched between, uh, obviously, Genesis 31 and Genesis 33. Genesis 31 records Jacob running away from his father-in-law And Genesis 33 records Jacob running toward his home, but his estranged older twin brother, who last we would have read 
several chapters before and 20 years before, had vowed to kill Jacob. And here in Genesis 32, there is a pause in the action. We could say that Genesis 31 is about yesterday, what he had done to his father-in-law Laban, and Genesis 33 is about tomorrow, where he's running back toward a brother who wants to kill him. Yesterday, tomorrow. Genesis 32 is about now. It is about night. Twenty years before Jacob had cheated Esau out of his inheritance, out of his blessing, and he had fled for his life to his uncle, his mother's brother, Laban. And there the schemer, Jacob, met his match. And you can read about it in Genesis, but for 20 years while he was in the household of Laban, uh, they tried to master each other, outwit each other, scheme against each other in matters of love, in matters of business, in matters of family, matters of marriage. And yet in it all, God blessed Jacob. But it gets to a breaking point and Jacob is told by God, you need to return home, even though there's a death sentence right there. So he heeds God's advice, and it didn't take much convincing. He begins running back toward home, and we read actually in Genesis 32 that Esau gets wind of this, is on his way to Jacob with 400 armed men. In this, this man, Jacob, doesn't get great press. His name literally means one who grasps the heel. And he was named that because as he and his brother Esau were being born, Jacob grasped the heel of his brother and the midwife noted this, saw it, and so that was what he was named, one who grasps the heel. That's the polite meaning of the word Jacob. The no less true but unsavory meaning of Jacob is deceiver or trickster. And a famous Jewish scholar when he compares Jacob to his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac, writes this about Jacob. The portrait as drawn in the Bible before Genesis 32 is striking in its pallor or its dullness. It depicts a man, Jacob, straightforward but unimaginative, honest but anxious to avoid risks, an introverted, frustrated man given to fits of temper, leading a marginal life, a weakling manipulated by others. Everyone made him do things, and he obeyed. Such was his nature. Incapable of initiative, he could never make up his mind. He accepted life as it came, preferring to follow rather than be followed. You wouldn't want this on your CV. This is not a good reference. He is a very ordinary man when you consider what we refer to as the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and <coughs> Jacob. It's like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So Jacob was left alone. Lean into the night. His aloneness is depicted in the text in several ways. It is night, just a simple telling of the time in verse 22, but there is an image of his spiritual state. He sends his family and his possessions across the Jabok, and there is an image of his isolation. 
He's adjacent to the Jabbok, uh, an 80-kilometer river which cut deep gorges into the landscape, an image of the depth of the encounter that's about to take place. An image of his spiritual state, an image of his isolation, an image of what is about to take place. And so Jacob was left alone, we read, but not for long, because then this is a mysterious phrase, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. So who precisely is in this fight? The way Genesis 32 begins gives us a hint. In verses 1 and 2, it wasn't in our reading, but the very beginning it said, Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God, and he named that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim means literally two camps. And as the rest of Genesis 32 unfolds, there are a series of twos. Jacob splits everyone into two camps. There are two brothers at play, Jacob and Esau. There are two families, Jacob's and Esau's. There will be two meetings, one with Jacob and this mysterious heavenly figure, and one that we are reading about today with Esau himself. But in this fight, there is another two. Again, this Jewish scholar puts it like this. Says the Midrash, which is a Jewish commentary written by rabbis, God created the world so that day would be day and night would be night. Then came Jacob and he changed the day into night. Explanation. In Genesis 32, for the first time, and listen here, Jacob behaved in the same way at night and during the day. That night, the two Jacobs came together, the heroic dreamer and the habitual fugitive, the unassuming man and the founder of a nation. They both clashed at Peniel in a fierce and decisive battle, To kill or be killed, it was a turning point for Jacob. He had a choice, to die before dying or to take hold of himself and fight and win. For the first time, Jacob behaved in the same way at night and during the day. That night, the two Jacobs came together. What this is saying is that there is a private self and a public self. There's what's true and what's false all mixed up and all mixed up in there. The fight between, if you will, the private and secret knowledge of who you know you are, who you fear you are, who you wish you were, and the experience of others who encountered the public knowledge of you as a person and what you do and what you say. And in it all, the revelation of what God knows and thinks of it all. Two Jacobs, two ewes, if you can take that, not the sheep. Many of you will be familiar with Eugene Peterson, the author of the Bible translation, The Message, and a range of other books on pastoral leadership and, um, and ministry. In a recent biography on him called A Burning in My Bones, Peterson is quoted in there as saying, I wish I was the person people think I am. 
And I think most of us can relate to that or versions of it. I think in our soul we could have the kind of script or wondering such as, I hope people don't find out who I really am. I wish I wasn't the person people have experienced me as. I am not worthy. I will be found out. I have a secret. If it gets out, I'm finished. I am unseen. I am unheard. I am unnoticed. Or perhaps taking out the words from Luke 15, Father, I've sinned against you, against heaven, and I am no longer worthy. Or in Mark 9, the father with a a boy demon-possessed, I believe, help my unbelief. Or perhaps the words of Peter on the night Jesus was betrayed, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Lean into the night. For the first time the two Jacobs came together, for the first time he behaved the same way at night as during the day. For that kind of fight, you need God in the fight. In that kind of fight, you need God against you only to discover that God is actually for you. There is a crucial spirituality in Genesis 32. This incident is incorrectly described, and it's probably in the division in your Bible, Jacob wrestles with a man, or Jacob wrestles with God. That's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible says, and a man wrestled with Jacob. God picked the fight. God initiated the fight, not Jacob. God fought with Jacob, not the other way around. And in this narrative, in this text, as you read it, as we immerse ourselves in it, there is a message as we watch this fight between God and his child. You read this, there is an inescapable spirituality that scripture is saying, and it is this, you're next. You're next. God is spoiling for a fight and you are his next opponent. And the place on which all this happens is holy ground. It's holy, it's mysterious, it's alone. No one else can take your part. You are in this alone. It is night. You are isolated. No one can help you. No one can, you can't tap out. This is not team tag wrestling or anything like that. It is you and God. In the 14th century, there was a woman called Catherine of Siena. Catherine of Siena devoted her life to deep prayer, deep contemplation. She died in her early 30s due to the uh, literal toll that that took. But the church leaders of the day were in awe of her. When she spoke, they listened. And she said this, there is a room in each one's heart where no man, no woman, 
no devil, no angel can go. Only you and God can go into that interior space. She is speaking of a principle here that Jesus expressed in the Sermon on the Mount. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your Father who is unseen. This is the place of Genesis 32. And if you wonder about the architecture of this room, or if you think of it as what is the geography of this place, what is the colour of this night, what are the rules of this fight, it's contained in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or fights with God? I put that bit in. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And by the way, I didn't tell the worship team what I was preaching on, so that selection of that song is interesting. And here is the particular architecture of the room. This is the particular geography of the place. This is the particular color of the night, the rules of the fight. Listen here, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Nothing can intrude or interfere with the work of God in your life, with the fight of God in your life, with the love of God in your life. Nothing. The fight in Genesis 32, it's beyond comprehension at one level. The details are scarce, but there is enough for us to resonate with it, for our imagination to be sparked and inspired. And we know through this biblical text that Jacob's mysterious opponent is God himself. And somehow God empties himself so it's kind of a draw. Perhaps it's almost like a, a parent play fighting with their toddler Oh, you've got me, you've pinned me to the ground. It's kind of that, but so, so much more. And now Jacob's, who, whose name is Grasp the Heel, now grasps God. God touches his hip, it's wrenched, you heard that, but Jacob won't let go. Both are immobilised, or at least God believe, lets Jacob believe that. But even with his hip, and even in pain, Jacob will not let go. Because God fights us to bring the fight out in us. God fights us to bring the fight out in us. And what is the desire that you will cling on for? What is the desire in your heart where you will say, I will not let you go until you bless me? It has been observed by a deeply spiritual man that God loves to be defeated by his children. I love that quote. God loves to be defeated by his children. And so this is what it means to lean into the night. Because once you've leant into the night, you can then listen at daybreak. For God says in this um, narrative, let me go for it is daybreak. But as I mentioned, Jacob states a price, a blessing, and God says, what is your name? 
Now, the obvious answer is given, but this is no conventional, conventional, oh, well, now that you ask, hi, my name is Jacob. No. In answer to the question by God, what is your name? Jacob saying his name is actually a confession. My name is Jacob, one who grasps the heel. My name is deceiver, trickster, schemer, manipulator. That is who is wrestling with you. This is the bearing of the soul. This is the exposure of character flaws. This is the inescapable declaration of here are my hidden agendas. This is my tendency. This is my sin. And I am in a wrestling match with God. Neither of us will let each other go. And now you ask me who it is that fights with you. I can't hide it. As one commentator puts it, Jacob now agrees with Esau's bitter statement because when Esau was tricked by Jacob, Esau says, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Let me hear him spit it out. Isn't he rightly named Jacob? But God pronounces his judgment. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. I love the DNA of that statement. No longer, but... You have struggled and have overcome. Oh, God fills in the gaps with those statements to this day. No longer, he says to you, but you have overcome. You've struggled. And fits in, if you will, in the gaps in those statements with your situation, your desire, your struggle, your tenacity. He fights you to bring the fight out in you. And the blessing, the reward for Jacob is a new name, Israel, meaning one who strives with God, that was specific to Jacob, and it is general for us all. The DNA of Genesis 32 is that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And such victory is centered on God and is because of God and the way he fights with us, the way he names us. So listen at daybreak. Just when you think your strength is running out, just when you think you have nothing left, you are in pain, you are struggling with God, now's the time to listen. Thousands of years after this happened in Genesis 32, after the darkest of nights, daybreak came and a grief-stricken woman stood in an empty place, probably not dissimilar to the kind of isolation that Jacob felt thousands of years before her. And no one could explain on this particular day what happened or comprehend what was going on. Others came and went, but not this particular woman. She stayed and she wept. And like Jacob, thousands of years before, she wouldn't let go. Angels asked her why she was crying, and she said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they have put him. And it didn't even seem like she comprehended they were angels. And then someone else asked her the same question, woman, why are you crying? And like Jacob, thousands of years before, she didn't initially recognize who it was who asked, and she thought he was a gardener, and she repeated her answer. And he responded with one word, her name, Mary. The resurrected Christ speaking out of the night, 
She didn't receive a new name, but more that she came into an experience of the name she loved, Jesus. Listen at daybreak. He gave her a new message for her brothers, and this naming continued and continues throughout the rest of the New Testament. Like Jacob thousands of years before, the fight, the gift of a new name in the first book of the Bible, Genesis is seen in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. It's interesting, uh, Lima, was it, uh, in her intercession referred to the seven churches in Revelation because in one of those churches, in Revelation 2 in Pergamum, Jesus says to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give a white stone. And on the white stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. And so all the biblical testimony concerning the struggle with God and the gift of a new name lands here and what it means. There was a Scottish uh, Presbyterian minister in the 19th century by the name of George MacDonald. Anyone heard of George MacDonald? Yeah. So the likes of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien cite George MacDonald as the reason that they wrote the way they wrote. You could say, without exaggeration, but for George MacDonald, there would be no Narnia, there would be no Middle Earth. And George MacDonald, writing on Pergamum and the new name, writes this, the true name that you heard about in Revelation 2 is one which expresses the character, the mature, the being, the meaning of the person who bears it. Who can give a person this, his own name, their own name? God alone. For no one but God sees what a person is or even seeing what they are could express in a name word the sum and harmony of what he sees. To whom is this name given? To the one who overcomes. When is it given? When they overcome. This is almost a commentary on Genesis 32. With the new name, God reveals a new depth of meaning to your life. You might say at one level, you ask God, I will not let you go until you bless me. Who are you? Your first answer may be a confession. This is who I am. And God will say, no longer, but because you have struggled, you have overcome. Your new name is your meaning, it's your vocation in Christ. George MacDonald continues, he says this, and listen, remembering what Catherine of Siena said about that private place in our heart, and for each God has a different response. With every person, he has a secret, the secret of a new name. In every person there is a loneliness, an inner chamber of peculiar life into which God only can enter. A chamber into which no brother, no sister can come. And from this it follows that there is a chamber also, a chamber in God himself into which none can enter but the one, the individual, the peculiar person, out of which that chamber that you have to bring revelation and strength for your brethren. This is that for which he was made to reveal the secret things of the Father. So a curious thing happens in Genesis 32. 
having lent into the night, listened at daybreak, you now limp by day. The curious thing is, Jacob receives his reward, he receives a new name, he limps away known as Israel, but the Bible immediately, you can see it in Genesis 33 onwards, goes back to referring to him as Jacob. Like, hello? Did the change not take place? Did nothing happen? And in fact, for the rest of Genesis, and only toward when he's an old man in Egypt, he's referred to Jacob, but as an old man, then we get Israel dropped in a few times. But throughout the rest of the scriptures, and in the prophets especially, they keep talking about Jacob rather than Israel. So what's that about? Don't forget that the wounds of Christ were proof of the victory of Christ. And I guess it takes a while to learn to walk with a limp. It takes a while to get places, and I think it takes a while for people to know and recognize you by your new name, by the new meaning in your life. Perhaps it takes you a while to learn to live according to your new name. But with this new name, God has revealed a new depth of meaning to your life, your vocation. And so we limp by day. And some days it feels like in that fight you haven't overcome. Some days it will feel like you have lost and are losing. But that is a lie. Because remember, God started this fight. God picked the fight. He picked the place and he has chosen a new name for you. Let me finish with this beautiful quote in a scripture. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Because, as Philippians 1 says, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, you're a faithful God. We thank you that you see us as you have created us to be. We confess, Lord, there is sin in our life and failings and flaws, but also there is faith and there is you. And we ask you for the grace and revelation that we can grow into the name that you call us by, that we would walk with a limp and that we would glorify and honour you as you form character within us and gift us by your Spirit. Amen.